So let's all just do a centering meditation real quick, if that's okay. Everybody just take their meditation posture, asana. Firm, fixed, and, and comfortable. Closing our eyes and raising them, looking out through that third eye as though at a distant star in the night sky. Take a big breath in and let it go. Inwardly acknowledge the truth of what you are, an individualized unit of pure existence being, perfect, flawless, immortal. Knowing that at that core, you are already that which you most desire, liberated, free. Divine Mother, Blessed Father, Beloved Friend, God, may your light shine steadily in the sanctuary of our continued devotion, and may we see this same light awakened in all hearts, everywhere. Om Namaste. Thank you. <clears throat> so, everybody can hear me? It's okay? It's good? Okay. So, before I begin, I just have this little disclaimer that I want to tell you. The extraordinary complexity and history and mysteries of the yoga sutras uh, never diminished from its spiritual importance for me. Learning about the yoga sutras and all the um, things we don't know about it actually uh, increased their richness for me. So I just want to say that to you, that there's nothing I say, I hope, that would ever diminish their importance in any way, shape, or form. And the other thing is, the history of the yoga sutras, you know, Books four or five hundred pages long have been written on this. So what I can do in 45 minutes is try to summarize it for you. But I acknowledge that there's no way I can cover everything and make sure that we have, you know, so if I leave someone out that, you know, I'm sorry, I had to prioritize. So as we begin, I do have a slideshow to share with you. Uh, Let me see if I can set that up. Anybody have any questions before I begin or anything they want me to? Okay, that is your chance. (laughs) Let's share this with you. Okay. So we're going to look at the Yoga Sutras, their history, their context, some definitions, and the structure of it. You might be surprised to find out that the Yoga Sutras were not always the yoga authority that they are today. Um, As a matter of fact, from the 12th century all the way through to the 19th century, the Yoga Sutras really languished in obscurity. Very little was written about them. There were no great commentaries. They just sort of fell off the face of the mat. Um, And what we want to ask ourselves is why? Why did for almost uh, 700 years, the Yoga Sutras just kind of disappear? Well, we do have an explanation for that. As everybody knows, this is Sri Yukteswar's uh, Yuga Cycles. And if you can see at the very, the Kali Yuga, the very furthest point away from the central sun, from the central sun, we noticed that during the Kali Yuga, uh, it was during this time that the Yoga Sutras sort of became non-existent as far as the world was concerned. And we have to ask ourselves, well, if they went away, did the other uh, scriptures of India go away too at the same time? And the answer is no, they didn't. The Gita, uh, the Vedas, all of that were stayed within the consciousness of India and Hinduism. And the answer why is pretty clear that the Yoga Sutras were never part of Hinduism. 
They were never in the mass consciousness of India. People don't look at them as the part of, of Hinduism. And that's one of the reasons that the Yoga Sutras sort of fell away is because people just weren't interested. And they continued to not be interested all the way up until really the, the 19th century. And they remained unknown until, believe it or not, a British man by the name, oops, by the name of Henry Thomas Colebrook. He was this, uh, he went over to India at 18 years old as part of uh, working for the East Indian Company. And he was a self-made scholar. Everything he learned, he learned all on his, pretty much on his own. And he was recognized as the first European uh, Sanskrit scholar ever. And in his uh, essays, the Sankhya Karaka, he included his interpretation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And it's interesting that he put it in here because Sankhya Karaka is part of the Samkhya philosophy. And he was implying that the Yoga Sutras were part of the Samkhya philosophy originally. Keep that in mind for later. So this became pretty well known in Europe. And also he sort of started a renaissance of uh, culture in India itself. That's how popular this was. So you'd think during that time period from then on, the sutras would sort of pick up, but they didn't. They again, languished in obscurity. And it really wasn't until, let me until Vivekananda came to the United States in the late 1800s, in 1896, and he wrote a book. And this book's name was Raja Yoga. And inside Raja Yoga, he included the Yoga Sutras. This book on Raja Yoga became a, a national bestseller. A doubt, he changed the consciousness of America about Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. But he did a couple things. One is he was speaking to an audience that was primary, primarily spiritualists and occultists and this budding new thought movement. And so a lot of his interpretations of potential Yoga Sutras, we can say at best, are loose. The other thing he did was he um, highlighted uh, Ashtanga Yoga in this. And so what happened was he didn't realize the influence that he would have over the decades, even today, most people, when we talk about potentially uh, yoga sutras, think of it as Ashtanga yoga. They think Ashtanga yoga is the yoga sutras, which it's not. Now, what would have driven Vivekananda into an even earlier grave, believe it or not, was that Ashtanga yoga has been become known as a Hatha yoga flow. And why that would have really driven him nuts, and I can say this without exaggeration, is he hated Hatha yoga. He hated it. He did not think Hatha Yoga belonged with yoga proper. He considered it to be an aberration of his classic yoga and Raja Yoga. And by the way, he wasn't alone. A lot of his contemporaries and a lot of yogis in the 17th, 18th, 19th century did not like. They perceived Hatha Yoga as an aberration, not belonging in the yoga world at all. So that's an interesting take on it. But you would think given his book was a national bestseller, that Patanjali's Yoga Sutras would become better known, but they didn't. They languished in obscurity once again. And during the early 20th century, it wasn't because a lot of yogis weren't coming to America to preach yoga. Here we have uh, four of them that came, which is kind of amazing because there was a really powerful anti-Hindu sentiment in America at the time. And you can see Yogananda, 
his influence, 1920s. Uh, Krishnamurti, I put here in 1922. He had his awakening experience in California in 1922, but it really wasn't until the 30s that he became well-known, but I had to pick some date. Bernard was an American who went to India and came back and taught yoga. But the interesting thing about these guys, none of them emphasized Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Not Yoganandaji mentioned them sometimes when he was comparing them in his Gita and other talks, but overall, they were not part of these ministries at all. There were a first, so in America, the Yoga Sutras didn't grow. There were a few in Europe that did it. T.S. Eliot, an American born British author, he used Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, a gentleman named Eliad, the German Hegel, and you may know this name, Carl Jung a Swiss psychologist, but all of them discontinued their research in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras because they didn't feel they appealed to their audience that they were looking for. But there was one European who did promote Patanjali's Yoga Sutras during this time, and believe it or not, that was William Butler Yeats. Uh, Yeats, the Irish-born poet, Nobel Prize winner, he had an Indian guru, and together they wrote a commentary on the Yoga Sutras later in his life that became pretty well known. But other than that, there wasn't a lot going on. Now, what was going on in India at this time? Practically nothing. There was very little written about it. Um, it was There was one uh, commentary on the Yoga Sutras by a Bengali author that got some movement. But there was almost nearly an anti-Yoga uh, Sutras sentiment in India during the first part of the 20th century. As a matter of fact, Sri Aurobindo, in his journals and in his writings, you may know that name, actually came out and said that his yoga was not the yoga of Patanjali, that his yoga was different, and he didn't particularly care for Patanjali's yoga. It was so little going on in India that David White wrote in his book, he called India at that time a yoga desert. Now, to be fair, what he was talking about was this academic bias. He was saying that there were no scholarly uh, commentaries on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra at the time. And he was probably right, very few of them. But we know that in ashrams and mass, it was the Yoga Sutras and were being used and taught, just not particularly in the consciousness of the public. So why am I spending so much time sort of painting this picture for you? Well, for CSA members, the reason I'm doing that is because I really want you to know that when Roy Eugene Davis published his first commentary on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras in 1962, he titled, This is Reality, he really was standing alone. There were not a lot, he wasn't joining the Yoga Sutra bandwagon, he wasn't part of some movement, he really was standing all alone when he did it. He had one contemporary by the name of Taimony, I.K. Taimony, who, wrote, who was a chemistry professor, and he wrote a book in 1961 titled, The Science of Yoga. But other than that, there wasn't a lot for Roy to go on. And uh, I think it's really important to notice that he did it all on his own. He published Kathleen Lowe, uh, you know Kathleen Lowe, board member and one of the foundational members of CSA. She told me that over his lifetime, she conservatively estimates that his copies of the Yoga Sutras, uh, his versions of them, have sold over 70,000 copies or distributed 70,000 copies. If you don't realize what an accomplishment that is, the average independent author sells 250 to 350 copies of their book. 
the average author who uses an independent publisher only sells a top 6,800. So 70,000 copies of one sort of series of books to such a, a niche market is incredible. So other than that, he was by himself. Now, after him, after he came, there sort of was a renaissance of commentators up through the late part of the 20th century. We see dozens and dozens, dozens of commentaries on Patanjali Yoga Sutras. But at the time, he really was standing alone. Uh, so let's sort of switch gears. And that's sort of the history that I can give you, the best I can give you without going on too long about it. So what are the Yoga Sutras? Well, we know in our studies that the Yoga Sutra means threads of union. Yoga, yuj, to yoke, and from that we extrapolate the word union. And sutra, from the root word stra, meaning thread or sieve to sew. Also, by the way, sutra means string. So it's this idea that there are strings of aphorisms being put together for us coming out to it. They are 196 short truth statements we call aphorisms. I don't know if you know this, but 74% of the yoga sutras are written in apposition. That means they're written without verbs, no verbs in them. And we'll talk about why that could be in a little later. They're written in Sanskrit, but believe it or not, they are not all in the same Sanskrit. There are two distinct different kinds of Sanskrit within Patanjali's yoga sutras, and they're split up into four padas or quarters. Originally, they only covered three or four pages. There wasn't very much of them. What I want to ask everybody here is, if you had to tell people, having been with CSA for so long and hearing about Patanjali Yoga Sutras, if you had to tell somebody, a stranger, who did not know what yoga was about, how would you describe Patanjali Yoga Sutras? And please don't say they're about yoga. <laughs> we know they're about yoga. How would you, does anybody, can anybody give me a different definition of the Yoga Sutras or a description of the Yoga Sutras? If you couldn't use the word yoga, how would you describe the Yoga Sutras? What are they about? Nobody? Yeah, Michael? Yeah, I usually mention that they're, the Yoga Sutras like uh, like a, like a, a blueprint of life. I mean, it's not nothing really separate from us, but it's, it's something that is really about our being. So that's what I tell people. It's just like a blueprint of life, a blueprint of our, our, of our higher being. I think blueprint is a great way to describe them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. totally. Anybody else? Hi, Kathleen. Hi. I, I agree. Maybe we could think of it uh, tagging on with Michael. A blueprint for the transformation of consciousness itself. I think that's really good, transformation of consciousness. We're going to talk about that. Anybody else have a? John says, instructions to understanding reality. And Roy titled his book, This is Reality. So that's a good one, I think. Anybody else? So I think all of those were really, really important and good. What... Scholars, how scholars describe Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is closer to what Kathleen Rowling said, and that is, we understand that the Yoga Sutras are about yoga. We also can call them about this blueprint, this science of self-realization, is what Yoganandaji described yoga. They can be called about liberation or enlightenment and also samadhi. Those are some of the things. The blueprint in the Bible, those are interesting takes on it for sure. 
almost always what scholars say when they describe Patanjali Yoga Sutras is they describe it as parinama chitta or transformation of consciousness. That's the number one thing you read scholar after scholar, book after book after book. This idea that they're the transformation process. Why that's interesting to me is because they're really not about enlightenment. They're really not about samadhi. They're really not about liberation. They're about the process of that it takes to get to those states. This is a little bit different perception of them. And the question I have to ask you all is as we move forward, do you think there's only one way to do that? Is there only one way to transform consciousness? And I would like you to consider that as we move forward. So if Parinama means transformation, what does consciousness mean? Let me, I've lost my, Chitta is a really tough word to define, by the way. When we look at Chitta, the root of the word Chitta comes from Chit, meaning to perceive. So it's this idea that we are perceivers. Some people translate this as consciousness. The most common way authors translate Chitta in the commentaries is as mind stuff. How's that for vague mind stuff? Roy's definition of chitta is he calls it a field of awareness. I really like that, this, especially this idea of field. Paramahansa Yogananda said chitta includes, it's this inclusive word, and in it, it includes manas, ahamkara, also known as asmita, prana, and buddhi. And as you can see, prana is not really within the mind. It's part of it, but it's not within it. So this, this field that includes all these things. And I really want you to keep that in mind. And the important thing to take away from Chitta is something that Vyasa said in his commentary. When he described Chitta, what he said was, it was one thing. So however you perceive chitta to be, this idea that it's an integrated field, that it's one thing that we're working on is a really important takeaway for that, okay? One of the reasons I like this idea of uh, parinama chitta, this transformation of consciousness, is because one of my favorite um, definitions is this, uh, for enlightenment is, when the mind is as pure as the soul, illumination dawns. I really enjoy uh, that definition of enlightenment because it makes me understand what I'm doing when I'm practicing what's in the yoga sutras, right? I'm sort of cleaning everything up so the light that's already in me can shine. It's like, it's like windexing the glass that's dirty, that sort, of, that sort of idea, okay? So that's why I really enjoy this idea that, that, that it's a process, a transformational process, because it cleans up all these problems. So let's again move forward and let's talk about some of the things about the yoga sutras. The first question we have to ask is who wrote them? Most people say, well, Patanjali, but it turns out that's only one theory. And by the way, I'm giving you five. There are dozens of theories on who wrote Patanjali's yoga sutras. And the truth is there is not one single shred of evidence. And I mean, zero evidence about who wrote Patanjali's yoga sutras. The most in South India, Tamil tradition talks about a single author named Patanjali. The problem with that is, first of all, anything and everything that people don't know in Tamil who wrote it, they say, oh, Patanjali wrote it. He's sort of the fall to guy. He was a grammarian. They don't know exactly when he lived, first, second century. They're not sure. 
They give him credit for writing medical books. They give him credit for being a grammarian. They give him credit for the Yoga Sutras, but there's zero evidence. Uh, most often in that tradition, you see, here's a statue of Patanjali. You see him as having a body of a snake, the head of this guy right here. The other theory is that Patanjali uh, wrote the Yoga Sutras and then used the name Vyasa to be his commentary. And then others say, no, Vyasa, a fifth century commentator, wrote the Yoga Sutras under the nom de plume of Patanjali. You see him go back and forth about this as well. And by the way, I'm giving you the five most popular um, hypotheses on who Patanjali was. The other big theory you see out there is Patanjali wasn't a name. Patanjali was a title and that it was a list, a line of gurus who wrote the Yoga Sutras over centuries, a lot like Homer. Uh, that's a very popular opinion. The other popular opinion is that there never was a Patanjali, a man or a, a, a lineage of gurus, but that the Yoga Sutras were an oral tradition put together and compiled. The reason that's can be rather compelling is because the name Vyasa means compiler. That's exactly what the name means, editor and compiler. So a lot of people say, no, Vyasa just compiled them and wrote a commentary on them. The other theory that's really gaining ground, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, is that the Yoga Sutras were never meant to be a standalone scripture that they were a part of Samkhya philosophy. Samkhya was the philosophy. Yoga was the practicum part of it. And that the Yoga Sutras were never meant to be extracted from, the, from Samkhya philosophy. This is a little tough because the writing was part of it. We'll talk about didn't work exactly, but that's a very big um, theory as well. Okay. So as any questions about these guys? Okay, so as we move forward, we have to ask, when were the Yoga Sutras written? Well, we don't know that either. Somewhere between 400 BCE and 400 CE. The only reason we know they were before 400 BCE, before 400 CE, is because Vyasa's commentary was in the 5th century. Other than that, we have no clues to when they're written. There's an 800 period gap. But if you notice when they were written, they were written right at the bottom of Kali Yuga, which I find really interesting. For this script to come out during the darkest period of our history during this cycle is kind of amazing. Okay. So there are some challenges when we look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. It's really unlikely it was a single author. And here's why. And I'm just giving you the highlights of the problems. The number one problem with saying that a single person wrote Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is that the first three padas of the Yoga Sutras, remember there's four, are written in a stylistically different Sanskrit than the fourth pada. The first three padas are written in what scholars call a Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit. And the fourth pada or chapter is written in classical Sanskrit. That would be like me writing a book and I write the first three-fourths of the book in old English and then suddenly switch to modern English. Who would do that? Nobody would do that. There's no reason to do that. And why would I write in a very different language, Buddhism? You wouldn't do that either. And there's a lot of theories about the fact that Buddhism at the time was going after 
all the other schools of thought, but they considered yoga to be part of their school as well. And so a Buddhist writer was showing that yoga was not separate from Buddhism, but that was part of Buddhism. The other challenge, especially with saying that the Yoga Sutras belong to Patanjali the grammarian, is often in the Yoga Sutras, and this makes Sanskrit scholars mad, but it's true, grammar is sacrificed for phonetics. It's really true. Uh, you can look at some words and they're like word jumbles. They make no sense at all, but they sound really pretty. But when you translate, literate them exactly, they, it, they're almost like a word jumble. And that may be a Western mind problem, but I don't think so. Another problem with saying that it was a single author is that the chapter titles in the Yoga Sutra almost seem forced. Let me give you a specific example. The, between the second and third chapter, or padas, we have this thinking of Ashtanga Yoga that runs three to six sutras into the third chapter, just cut off. It's almost as if someone put the chapter title in wrong. So when they're talking about Samyama, suddenly it goes far into the third chapter when it doesn't belong in that chapter. That's a whole different chapter. The other challenge is, Throughout the Yoga Sutras, they repeat the same thing over and over again in different ways and in different languages. Why would I, writing something, tell you in four different ways, but in different places in the chapter in completely different languages? That's kind of unlikely. <laughs> the other challenge is they use different technical terms for the exact same word. So in some places, for example, they were, use the word samadhi. In two other places, they use a very different word that is technically different for samadhi. And the other thing is, several of the sutras seem misplaced. It's almost as if that someone took a sutra and plopped it in. So you find a sutra that belongs in the theme of the first pada just dropped into the third pada. And so you're reading along and suddenly you're like, wait, this is not juxtaposed. Where did this come from? So it's almost like there's this hodgepodge of somebody put it together kind of thing. So they seem misplaced. And if you were a single author, you would take care to make sure that your thought processes went together. You would edit it, especially if you were Vyasa, collator, editor, you would edit it so it works. And the last big reason it's unlikely that the Yoga Sutras was a single author is they're written in apposition. There are only four verbs used throughout the entire text of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And we have to ask, why? Why are the Yoga Sutras written without verbs? And by the way, that wasn't unprecedented. There were other Sanskrit works that didn't use many verbs, but there has to be a reason why someone wouldn't use verbs. And we kind of want to talk about that. There are several reasons why not to use verbs when you're writing in Sanskrit. First of all, it's phonetically more pleasing. So in other words, yoga, chitta, vritti, niroda, that doesn't have any verbs in it, but it sounds pretty, don't it? I think it sounds pretty anyway. The other reason is it's easier to memorize. It's a mnemonic tool. So in other words, A squared plus B squared plus equals C squared is a lot easier to memorize than the square of the hypotenuse of a right triangle is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. <sighs> a squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's a lot easier to memorize when things sound good and you don't have verbs. They're almost written like mathematical equations. And that's a really important thing to consider. Okay. So 
the idea that they were writing them so that people wrote down something as if they were used in an oral tradition and memorized before starts to take on more and more weight as we look at Patanjali Shoga Sutras. It's as if there was an oral tradition passed down from teacher to student long before they were codified or written. And Yoganandaji in his Bhagavad Gita commentary talks about that as well. So then there are two traditions in India. One is Shruti and one is Shmriti. You may have heard of them. Shruti is literally that which is heard or revealed. It's considered the one without authorship. They heard in meditation the, these works and then they, then they committed to memory and shared them with them. This Shruti tradition is considered more authoritative in India. It includes the Vedas, the Brahmanas, you can see the Upanishads, some Dharma Sutras. The other tradition is Shmriti, that which is remembered. This is usually the works attributed to an author. And that includes the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, the Puranas. But here's what's interesting. Patanjali's Yoga Sutras doesn't fall in either category. These are all the works of India, Hinduism, but Yoga Sutras stands alone. It's like the redheaded stepchild of Indian Hinduism literature. It doesn't belong anywhere. Uh, I think that's a really interesting point. It's another reason why potentially Yoga Sutras have not taken their rightful place, in my opinion, in Hindu uh, consciousness. They're, they're looked at, but they're like, yeah, they're nice, but, you know, moving on. They're not really part of it. Okay. That's wrong way. I'm going backwards. So before we move on to the next part, I think it's really important to talk about yoga, the yoga of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. In Ceremonia Williams' dictionary, he defines the word yoga with over five dozen different definitions. It has more definitions than any other word is in, in his entire dictionary. And that dictionary, by the way, is about that thick, if no one's ever seen it. It's huge. It's like an unabridged English dictionary. It's so big. Over 2,500 words are assigned to just the word yoga alone, four columns of definitions. 72 of those words alone are applied to just the yoga of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And I put this mathematical calculus, that's how crazy some of the definitions is. One of the definitions of yoga is mathematical calculus, just to give you an idea for it. So... Let's talk about how Westerners most often describe, define the word yoga. We often use the word yoga in three particular ways. The first most common way, as you all know, is for hatha yoga. Yoga, when they say yoga, most of the world thinks of hatha yoga, this series of asanas, which technically wasn't even part of yoga until the 16th century. We find some references prior to that, very few, but almost always those references are to prana, not hatha. Hatha meaning force flow. Hatha was not, the way we see Hatha didn't exist prior to the 16th century. The other most common way, one of the ways is yoga as in yuj, to yoke, which we extrapolate the word union from. And we use union to mean samadhi when we talk about that. And the other way that we use interchangeably in context, yoga as a system of practices this ontological processes and procedures that lead us to samadhi, okay? Those are the three most common way that we define yoga. For our purpose, as we move forward, we're going to define yoga in just two ways, really. One is yoga is union, samadhi. The other way is um, 
The other way we can define yoga is a system of practices. We're going to use those two ways as we move forward to look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Okay. So remember when we talked about how at least I don't consider the transformation of consciousness to only occur in one way. Most scholars, when they look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, say there's at least four different processes of yoga within it. Often they say there's seven. Some scholars I've read had claimed there are 20 different yoga techniques and processes within Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. I think that's getting carried away. These four, I understand. The first is Niroda Yoga. You know that, Yoga, Chitta, Vritti, Niroda. Then Samadhi Yoga, and you're all familiar with Kriya Yoga and Ashtanga Yoga. Most scholars say that these are four separate, distinct yoga processes within Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. What I want you to know is that's an academic point of view. From a practicum point of view, none of them conflict with each other. It's very easy to integrate all of these processes into one practice. Most of us do that without even realizing it. Okay. So as I'm getting ready to sort of wrap up this presentation, one of the things I wanted to do was to show you as we move forward the incredible complexity of the Yoga Sutras when it comes to actually transliterating them and then paraphrasing them. And part of my reason for doing this is I want to show you the incredible clarity Roy Eugene Davis maintained and the purity of his message he maintained over the years. So what we're going to do together today, and you all can stop me anytime you want, is we're going to talk over what has become, I think it's kind of the catchphrase of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, and that is Yoga Chitta Vritti Niroda. So here we have this sutra. It is only four words, Yoga Chitta Vritti Niroda. But remember, there are no verbs here, right? There's no verbs in this saying. So we can write it like a mathematical equation. Yoga equals Chitta plus Vritti plus Niroda. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? That shouldn't be that hard to interpret or transliterate. But guess what? We've already talked about all the different varieties we can define yoga and chitta with. So let's go through this so that I can show you how challenging it is to understand when you're transliterating and presenting this information to people, how much work it takes. And again, this is one of the easiest, most straightforward, short sutras in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. It's only four words. Some words in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are 20 and 25 words long. Some sutras are. This is just four. So when we move forward, first of all, we've already defined yoga. We know it means union or samadhi. But we also have looked at yoga together, and we know it also means this process and procedures. The ontological study of self and being processes and procedures involved in it. Okay? And now we've talked about chitta, too. The most common way to define chitta is mind stuff. That's the way most of them talk about chitta. But... Most scholars also, I mean, not most scholars, Paramahansa Yogananda said it was this manas, prana, asmita, buddhi. Roy called it a field. Vyasa said, however you define it, acknowledge that it's just one thing. Then we have this word vritti. What I want to tell you about this word vritti is most people who comment, give their comments on potential Yoga Sutras really don't do this word justice. You often hear it defined as a whirlpool. It is not a whirlpool. That is not how they intend it. The word vritti comes from vrit, which means to whirl. 
Our English word vert, as an in introvert, comes from this same word. It has this idea of turning inward. So that's where the world, idea of whirlpool comes from. It's the inward turnings associated with the mind. But here's the thing. That's the way most often it's interpreted, but Patanjali actually gives his definitions later on. He talks about it being five states of awareness, right? And each one of these states of awareness is klista, uh, klista, uh, afflicted or not afflicted. So technically, vritti are 10 separate unique states of awareness. Some like dreaming, you can have nightmares that can be afflicted or not nightmares, or you can have superconscious dreaming. So here we have vritti as the turnings of the mind, but also these points of view we have. How do we take in information? How do we process it? Both those are adequate definitions. And then we have the word niroda. Niroda is a tricky word. It literally means restriction or cessations, as in stopping. But if you really study this word and you go look for the scholars, it also means, when we look at it, and it meant in older Sanskrit, the process of restricting. So not only is Niroda the stopping of everything, it's also the process we use to stop it. So in this one Yoga Chitta Vritti Niroda, we see there are two separate and distinct definitions, which speaks not only to its complexity, but also the brilliance of Sanskrit. So we can describe yoga as samadhi occurring when the turnings in the mind stuff are restricted. In other words, when it's absolute stillness, samadhi. We also can describe Patanjali's Yoga Sutras as this yoga process. So the process of restricting the vritti and the chitta is also the process of yoga at the same time. So yoga leads to yoga. How's that for clear? Okay. So you can see within this one sutra how complex and complicated Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is. And imagine now people are translating from this Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit into some now it's been translated into some 46 languages worldwide. Okay. So in case you think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, which is possible for me, here is one author who compiled all the different commentaries on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, different authors. And he came up with 22 separate um, paraphrasings for Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And these don't include the ones you and I just went over. Okay. So my favorite is number 21. <laughs> Yoga is the icy silence of post-disintegration. I have no idea what that means, but I think it's poetic sounding. Okay, so you can see how Roy Eugene Davis maintained this clear message and purity of translation year after year. He had kind of a love affair with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras that lasted his whole career, his whole minister, ministerial career. And Kathleen Lowe told me, actually, that in the last year before he died, he was talking to her about redoing the Yoga Sutras again, uh, reworking them, which I think is really interesting. So... This comes almost at an end to this presentation. Does anybody have any questions for me or anything like that? Any curiosities about it? Okay, so let's just review together. Who wrote the sutras? We don't know. There are dozens and dozens of theories about it. There is zero historical evidence. Everything we know about this person, Patanjali, is myth, lore, and legend. When were they written? 
sometime before the fifth century. That's all we know. We have an 800 year period. And the only reason they date it before four or after 400 BCE is because of the kind of Sanskrit that was written in. Are the yogas part of the Shruti or Shmriti tradition? Neither. They are the redheaded stepchild of Indian literature. They really are. What philosophical school did they arise out of? It's most likely that Patanjali's Yoga Sutras were originally part of Samkhya philosophy and became their own branch of, of the dharmas. What are they about? Well, they're mostly about transformation of consciousness. And there are many ways for that to occur. They're written in two languages, two different Sanskrits. Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit and a classical Davidian Sanskrit. But those are not related, by the way. And that thinking has led people to believe that the fourth pada was an add-on trying to summarize though it came before. That maybe Vyasa wrote it in classical Sanskrit, commentating on it at the same time. It was an add-on. But originally, most people are now thinking they were not all one thing, that it was more than one thing. So to end this, I want to read you this poem that comes from Swami Shankarananda. And now with age and turmoil weary, all that's left me is this query. Will heartbreak or mind implode before my vrittis do near road? <laughs> that's like my favorite poem about them. All right. Uh, anybody Michael? have any questions or comments or challenges for me? Michael? Yeah. Michael? I'm listening. I just wanted to say you've done such a wonderful job with this presentation. It's really tight now. It's really helped. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Anybody else want to say anything? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Good. Good day, everybody. Have a great day. Great retreat. <laughs>